0: Hello there, Ginger here. I hope you're listening to this episode while on a road trip or relaxing beachside on your own holiday. This is a friendly note from me that we have updated this episode with new data and interviews as tourism has changed so much since COVID 19. So, once you're done listening, scroll to season three and find it as a bonus episode.
1: This is Seriously Social the podcast where Australia's best social scientists help us understand the social impacts of the COVID-19 crisis. It's brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman.
0: G'day, you are listening to Seriously Social. This is the podcast where we use the lens of the social sciences to help us consider how COVID-19 is impacting Australian society. Our relationships, human connections, and societal structures. We get experts from the social sciences to delve into all those nagging pandemic questions, whether it's aspects of your own life you're wondering about or queries about the wider community. With me now is Zara Doltnichar. She is a professor at the University of Queensland's Business School with expertise in tourism. Sarah is also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Ginger. Wow, the tourism industry took a belting in the pandemic. So some people are saying tourism is dead. How are you looking at this with your expertise? Yeah, it's
1: interesting. We hear so many opinions now, uh, and most of them are very apocalyptic uh, in its outlook. Really, I think a lot of what's going to happen is hinging upon whether we find a vaccine or not, right? If we do not find a vaccine, then the tourism industry is going to have to radically reinvent itself because suddenly safety is a serious concern. We can't move freely and movement obviously is the basis of uh, our ability to go on holiday and go on vacation. Uh, If, however, we do find a vaccine in the near future, then potentially we might return to our old normal faster than we expected.
0: Do you really think that's going to happen, though? Because, say, something like going on a cruise after these terrible incidences where the virus was just spread and so many people died as a result of being on those ships, that fills me with absolute terror, (laughs) you know? Yes. yes,
1: I don't blame you. But uh, tourism is very interesting, right? Why do people engage in tourism as customers, as tourists? Because it makes us really happy, right? It, it makes us, it gives us joy, it creates pleasure. And as humans, we crave that, right? So tourism, therefore, is actually a very, very resilient sector. Questions like this arise often if there is a disaster with an airplane. We have an airplane crash. And then the discussion arises, will any, will people fly again? Will they ever fly again? And guess what? The next time they book a trip, there is the cheapest carrier and they fly again. So our wish to ha- to engage in that really, really pleasant activity actually manages to overcome a lot of that fear uh, that we perceive.
0: But what is going on in our brains? <laughs> like that, that seems quite crazy to me, for example, that you rush out to get a plane ticket because they're cheap after a huge plane crash or that you are going to go on a cruise despite the fact that we now know that a virus like COVID-19 can be spread all over a ship and it's very hard to contain.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's why social sciences are the most fascinating thing ever, right? Because humans are just not rational beings. Humans just do not sit down and calculate the likelihoods of things going wrong. But uh, humans make, uh, if you want, uh, wrongly biased decisions. One of the well-known biases is optimism bias, right? Where we're convinced it's never going to happen to me. So the same question you asked about the cruise ship, you could ask every smoker, right? Why would you (laughs) rationally choose to smoke if you know it's going to increase your chances uh, of dying of lung cancer? So
0: let's, for argument's sake, say that the pandemic ended we had a vaccine, are we all then going to rush out and buy tickets? Are we all going to go to Hawaii straight away? What is going to happen in terms of tourism, do you imagine? Well,
1: I imagine that there will definitely be changes. I think the scenario where there's no change is very, very unlikely. And we already see those changes. So the main change I see will be procedures. So in Hong Kong, you might have seen they already have a pod where a human walks in and gets full body sprayed and disinfected. They don't use those for travelers at this point in time, but they may well. Right. So we might find ourselves in a time where if we do choose to travel internationally, it may become very, very expensive because the carrying capacity of the plane is going to be lower because every airport is going to have multiple levels of protection to make sure uh, people are safe. So will there be changes? Absolutely. There will be changes in procedures. But will we stop traveling? I doubt it. Will the tourism Industry stop operating. I doubt it. Yeah, the the importance to the economy of tourism is very, very, very high. So it's about 10 percent of GDP globally and one out of every 10 jobs in some countries, a lot more than that. Right. So I think as soon as it is safe, the tourism industry will try to rebuild as quickly as possible.
0: Some people are talking about a kind of global reset in the tourism industry and what you described to me when we were chatting before this interview as a ground zero when it comes to sustainability, which is one of your real areas of expertise, What do you think? Are we really going to see this reset? Well, I'm obviously very
1: passionate about this particular area, so my entire research program currently is about how to make tourists behave more environmentally friendly. So I would love to see nothing more but a real reset and a real rethinking of the negative environmental consequences of tourism. See, people don't realize, because tourism is a very kind of romantic industry, right? If we talk about mining or steel production, the picture we get is not quite as romantic. But tourism, in fact, is the fifth most polluting industry on the planet. It contributes up to 12.5% to global warming. It generates 8% of all of our carbon emissions. We produce 35 million tons of waste. I could go on, right? So all this pleasure we have comes at a huge, huge environmental cost.
0: I'm just so shocked by that figure. Like, it's incredible. And why do we never hear about that? Well,
1: we do discuss that in our area of research all the time. But of course, it's logical for the tourist not to want to discuss that, right? Because remember, it's your precious two weeks off. All year you've been working to earn that time off. You have in your mind the license to sin. The last thing you want to hear from me is how it harms the environment, right? So we we don't want to really know how much it harms the environment.
0: I was watching one of your fabulous videos about trying to get people to opt when they're in hotels not to have their room cleaned as often. And actually, the measures that convince people to have their room cleaned less were very simple. So could it be, Sarah, that we are not just resetting the safety and the cleanliness side of things, but we are then putting, like, it would be a perfect time to actually reset the clock? It
1: would be a perfect time, but I I am very skeptical. (laughs) The reason I'm skeptical is because even at the best of times, right, when the tourism industry was going well and super healthy, that was not the primary concern. I would like it to be, but it was not the primary concern. Now we have much more existential problems. Now, basically, you know, people lost jobs. Uh, Entire sectors are wiped out and do not know when or how they will get back on their feet. So frankly, again, that's in human nature, right? When it's about survival, uh, the the, the good of the planet is probably not going to be the first thing on people's minds.
0: A lot of people lost their jobs in tourism. It employs a lot of people. So what can you tell me about the current state of that sector in terms of employment?
1: Well, the current state of the sector is devastating, absolutely devastating. And uh, the important insight from this is actually that before COVID-19 hit, we knew that the nature of much of that employment is very insecure we were celebrating the gig economy, right? We were seeing the benefits and I'm not saying there's no benefits. So, you know, you rent out a spare room in your house on a peer-to-peer network. Well, you can do that if you are maybe 55 and nobody wants to employ you. You can do that when you're a mother or father with five kids uh, roaming around. So there are benefits of this kind of employment. But at the same time, it comes at the price of having very little job security. And that's what we saw. And we would have never predicted the extent to which it can hurt people uh, when a real disaster hits. So uh, so devastating is the word. That is the, the consequence of this pandemic on tourism and hospitality employment.
0: And the economic hit because of COVID-19 is massive. And one of the things that has done is show up this real weakness in the economy, which is a very casual workforce.
1: Absolutely. And I think the the real challenge for us is now we're moving away from the environmental topic, but we're still on the topic of resetting the industry, right? So the the opportunity, if we are able to take it from this, is to think about new employment models, which could leverage some of the experiences we've actually seen unfold. So if you think Qantas, Qantas, cannot employ people, so they have to stand them down. At the same time, supermarkets are desperate for more people. Call centers need people. Well, interestingly, some of the base skills these people have are very similar. They need to interact with humans. They need to be able to problem solve. They need to be able to deal with complaints. So maybe thinking of it as a tourism and hospitality workforce is conceptually wrong. Maybe we need to train people to be be really, really well-trained for the service in Industry more broadly, so that when these kinds of situations emerge, they have another home quickly and they're just not, you know, unemployed in a queue. This is seriously social.
0: It's an amazing idea, isn't it? Because it would actually build in a kind of resilience rather than what we have at the moment, which is, you know, as we just said, a real weakness of a casual workforce. You've written a really interesting paper about this, Sarah. And what did you conclude when you were analysing the workforce in this way?
1: Yeah. So I was fortunate I worked with two uh, young colleagues here at the University of Queensland because I'm not an expert in workforce, but they are. In fact, one of my colleagues did a PhD on the gig economy. So we decided, let's just have a think about it. And we allowed ourselves the freedom of a social scientist to think what in an ideal world could this look like? And we do think in an ideal world, we would train people to become outstanding service workers, right? But then within There's many, many sectors in this service industry. It goes as far as it could be supermarkets, uh, flight attendants, could be aged care, right? Could be out of home care, could be all sorts of these roles. Call centers. So if we train people really well to be good at the base skills that are needed in all those sectors, and then over the years, they acquire more sector-specific skills and maybe even more role-specific skills. So it gives them the depth, but it also gives them the versatility that they can, with relatively little switching cost, move across to different sectors. You know, that that really would be a very constructive way, I believe, of moving forward, which would not depend on... Emergency payments by government, right, where we would try to actually manage this process uh, within uh, the services uh, industry.
0: Uh, One of the things you mentioned briefly just there a couple of minutes ago relating to the gig economy was about Airbnb, which you also have an interest in and have done a lot of work around. What has happened to Airbnb? Well, Airbnb
1: has always fascinated me, right? From when it started, I thought, isn't that fascinating? So people are willing to just check into someone's spare room. (laughs) absolutely fascinating, right? Like if you think of so many aspects of this, it's just remarkable. So I've studied it for a while and then COVID-19 came, right? And Airbnb bookings are down 96%. So basically, this phenomenon, I would call it, which was defined by exponential growth and not only by the growth of Airbnb, but think of the millions of people who have become micro entrepreneurs, not only the hosts, the cleaners who were cleaning, the linen companies that were supplying, the gardeners, the pooled carers, the companies that have become intermediaries who actually help owners with the hosting. So millions and millions of people are hanging off this exponentially increasing sector and suddenly it's all over, right? And then one thing that's interesting is the drop. But to me, that was not the most interesting bit. The most interesting bit is what will happen now to the nature of the beast. Because the nature of the beast originally was mom and pop opening a spare room. Then it becomes so commercially attractive that investors moved in. Right. And they just went in and they said, I'm buying this apartment and I'm going to repay my mortgage by renting it out on the short term market. And we saw more and more of that, more and more. And the implicit assumption was it's never going to stop growing. It's just going to keep growing. We just keep buying properties and just get more investor hosts. And suddenly it's all gone. And suddenly we have all these investor hosts paying bills not having any revenue. So, you know, there's a real chance that Airbnb will move back to its original ethos.
0: So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you had this giant disruption and you saw councils all over the world, like local councils trying to govern this. Uh, You saw the outcry from the hotel sector. And now this giant disruptor has obviously been disrupted by the pandemic, Are we going to go back into hotels? Are the likes of you and I, if we ever get out of lockdown, going to still stay in people's spare rooms? Are we going to be worried about hygiene? Like, what's going to happen? Well, I'm not too worried about
1: demand. I think the moment we can travel again, the demand will be there. I'm more concerned about supply right? Because the mom and pop hosts will still be in business. They will still make their room available. But what about all those investors? They are suddenly thinking, well, hang on. There's a lot more risk involved in this business than I knew. So I don't think that this whole sector has a demand problem. It's going to have a supply problem because potentially fewer people are going to play this investor host game. The, The point of regulation is an interesting one with Airbnb because, uh, the public discourse about Airbnb was very, very much about who's regulating, how are we going to prohibit this, are we going to regulate, are we going to set an upper, upper limit, are we going to have licenses? And again, from one day to another, it's flipped, right? From one way to another, we might see a world where public policymakers or 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 uh, policymakers in charge of tourism will try to desperately find. Ways to encourage people to rent out short term, so it is really truly mind boggling because the the one event, especially in peer to peer accommodation, has just uh, meant such a very seismic shift. Uh, also for regulatory needs. Yeah.
0: So if you imagine the industry the, in five years' time, when this is all over. What is it going to look like? Oh, I think it
1: will still be alive and well, but there might have been a bit of a, there will be a little bit of a, a balancing out, right? So this real spike of investment, investor hosts, I don't think will keep growing. So I think it'll be leveling out a bit. The, the, the mom and pop hosts will still be there and there will still be demand for that. But I think there will be a lot less of the real commercial uh, short-term rental business we've seen over the past five years or so.
0: And what about the entire industry, the tourism industry? How is this pandemic going to shape the future of tourism, not just in Australia but around the world? Like are cruises going to disappear? Are we all going to go back to hotels? Are we all going to be paranoid about dirty planes? Like what's going to happen?
1: Well, I think for starters it will be driven to a large degree by finding a vaccine or not finding a vaccine And, and how quickly. And that's not the end of it. So that COVID-19 is actually not just COVID-19. It is the prospect of COVID-20 and 25 and 54, right? So suddenly as an industry, we are aware that these things can happen anytime and we understand the absolutely existential, fatal consequences when it happens. So without any doubt, Cruise ships, airplanes, whoever is providing a service will have a massive change in procedures. There's already UV robots running around airports and hotels, right? So there is no doubt that's going to change. Now, the risk, which is a very structural risk to tourism, is that all those procedural changes will increase the price of the services provided. If the price of the services provided increases, well, then we're actually back at the point where tourism becomes a massive luxury good. And that's not very... That's not a very attractive prospect, right? Because before COVID-19, we were talking about social tourism and how we would like to give everyone the opportunity to, to enjoy a vacation. And suddenly we may end up at the point where it's just becoming unaffordable for a large fraction of the, of the population.
0: It's almost like rewinding to, say, the 50s when it was so unusual to travel to go on a ship or to go on a plane and it was expensive and the ordinary person didn't do it. The ordinary person might drive a couple of hours to the beach, but that was it.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's exactly where we will immediately, the short-term future will be uh, domestic travel. Right. As soon as we're allowed to travel between states again or across uh, between New Zealand and Australia, there will be immediately demand. Why? Because we have been locked up for two months now. We are desperate, (laughs) right, for a vacation. So, yes, domestic travel, road trips no planes, we'll I sit in my car because I've cleaned my car, and I'm going to drive two hours down to the beach, and I'm going to stay there in something where I know it's clean, whatever it might be. Whether I perceive an Airbnb to be cleaner or a hotel is my personal decision, right? But absolutely, that uh, that will change. And yes, it could well happen that international travel for the foreseeable future is unaffordable. Yeah.
0: It's kind of tragic, actually, in a way, like when I think about, say, being a 19-year-old and backpacking around the world, perhaps my children will never have that opportunity.
1: Yeah, it is uh, interesting times, isn't it? It's uh, also interesting uh, things we teach our children when we look at them and we say, the most important thing I will teach you is to wash your hands. And you think, wow, right, that wouldn't be a thing my mother would have told me.
0: No, indeed. Is there anything else that you want to say, Sarah? Yes, I would like to
1: take the opportunity to say, to make a more general observation, which is not so much about tourism research. In many societies, we seem to lack respect for the social sciences and for the sciences. And we belittle them. And we think, oh, that's not a very wise investment of our taxpayers' money, right? And then a moment like this comes. And suddenly... Humanity depends existentially on scientists developing a vaccine and on social scientists to guide policymakers how to change people's behavior, how to influence people to behave in the right way. And I wished that we could remember that moment because, again, my fear is once we have the vaccine and life moves on, we may just forget how important the work of scientists and social scientists is.
0: Thank you very much for speaking with me today. My pleasure, Ginger. And thank you very much for listening to Seriously Social. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and on your social channels and rate us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of the
1: Seriously Social podcast was brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and hosted by Ginger Gorman. For episode notes and transcripts, visit socialsciences.org.au slash podcasts.